Well, it, it is a pleasure to be part of Rare Book School during its inaugural year here in Charlottesville. It's also a, an honor to be speaking in this room during this Jefferson anniversary year and to see the Book Arts Press collections so handsomely displayed. Living on the lawn this past week has been a magical experience. Thank you, Terry. One really must admire Jefferson's genius. As architect of this university and architect of our national government. But he also made libraries, several in fact, and of all our national heroes, he must have been the most bookish. He would have taken the international trade in books, which is the subject of my talk tonight, for granted. Over the past several years, I've often found myself, both in classes and at conferences, called upon to explain or summarize the achievements of the history of the book this new discipline which has generated so much enthusiasm and activity over the past 15 years. This has caused me to stop and ponder our successes and accomplishments, but also to recognize how much has been overlooked or remains to be done. Only a little over 10 years ago, Robert Darnton first published his essay, What is the History of Books? In this important piece, frequently reprinted and more frequently cited, Darton chronicles the emergence of this new field of research. He explores the influence of different scholarly traditions, uh, particularly that which, under the direction of Henri-Jean Martin, emerged in France from the Annales School. He paints the picture of an international group of scholars from many disciplines, working largely in isolation, but drawn together by common interests and enthusiasm for book history. This group is said to form a sort of scholarly underground community, not unlike the early Christian church, perhaps, carrying on its work quietly and steadily while meeting in cafes, at scholarly conferences, communicating by means of newly established newsletters and journals, founding research centers, lecture series. Darton even ponders the possibility of passwords and a secret handshake. So here we are today. As far as I'm aware, there are no passwords and secret handshake, and if there were, I would not be at liberty to say. But I do think that as book historians, we still have the sense of being a dispersed group, laboring alone on our tasks that seem for the most part to be overlooked or ignored by our colleagues. Day to day, we thirst for help, advice, encouragement, and we've formed our own special far-flung networks to meet these needs, Rare Book School. No doubt this is true of all scholarly endeavors, but I think that we feel that it's especially true of ours. Just in the past couple of years, I've subscribed to two new newsletters, one published in Paris and Göttingen, the other in Madison, New Jersey, both established with the aim of providing a forum for book historians, one that, quote, can put us in contact with one another. Despite all our energy and work, and, I should add, much work which is being done by other scholars who, though they're not aware of it, seem to me to be addressing issues relevant to the field, the history of the book has not yet emerged as an accepted and established scholarly discipline within the academy. What has emerged instead are a number of separate projects dedicated to preparing collaborative, multi-volume national histories of the book. The French led the way with their four-volume L'Histoire de l'Édition Française, prepared under the direction of Martin and Roger Chatier. I now understand that a fifth volume is being planned to bring that history to the end of the 20th century. 
The Germans and British quickly developed their own plans. Many of you will know the projected six or seven volume history of the book in Britain, which will be published by Cambridge University Press. Here in the United States, we've been a bit slower, but over the past two years, the program in the history of the book at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester has accepted the role of acting as a sponsor and organizer of a similar collaborative history of the book in North American culture and society from the beginnings into the 20th century. The AAS program has recently received a generous grant from the NEH to help with this project and is now also, as the British, negotiating with Cambridge University Press to act as publisher. It would be interesting to explore how each of these national histories reflect, uh, reflects national scholarly concerns and approaches. The continuing fascination in France with the role of the book as the cause of the French Revolution or our American tendency to assume that Gutenberg invented movable type in 15th century Germany so that nearly three centuries later the young apprentice Benjamin Franklin could take the first steps on his path to fortune and fame. But instead, I wish today to focus on what these national histories tend to overlook, the international trade in books. That books are no respecters of national borders is self-evident. This is something that Thomas Jefferson understood. But this fact has only been accommodated in these national histories in limited and awkward ways. This points to a fundamental and serious limitation in their conception. It seems to me ironic that the practice of the history of books, those international agents of intellectual and cultural exchange, should have emerged in this way. For as a discipline, it has done much to bring together an international and enthusi enthusiastic group of international scholars. Now, I do not mean to suggest that scholars have completely ignored the international trade in books. This talk owes a great debt to Giles Barber, who has long been studying this trade. In 1976, he published an important article, Books from the Old World and for the New, the British International Trade in Books in the 18th Century, which has indeed achieved a certain canonical status. But Mr. Barber tells me that he intended that paper not as the presentation of a completed project, but rather as an incentive for further work. And I'd be pleased if this talk tonight served a similar purpose. In that article, Barber shows the importance of customs records as a source of statistics for the international trade in books. And I have drawn on those statistics, abstracted from the British parliamentary papers and the American serial set, to prepare a series of graphs, which are part of the handout. And let me just say that this is work in progress, and so those figures shouldn't be taken at, as final. Although these graphs are based on a very unscientific sample, and thus open to question and refinement, I believe that they suffice to suggest clearly some important facts about the extent of the Anglo-American trade in books during the 19th century. Now, the first pair of graphs, and I think I even have one here, yes, uh, gives an overview of imports and domestic exports. Notice that they're measured in hundred weights above and dollars below from, 18, uh, from 1828 to 1868. One fact is immediately obvious, the tremendous, apparently exponential growth in the trade over the period, especially exports from Britain and imports into the United States. 
the 1828 figures, the smallest, for Britain are roughly equivalent to the largest that Barber found for any year during the entire 18th century. But the limited scale of Britain's foreign trade during the early century is suggested by the fact that Barber found that variations in his statistics on imports from year to year can in part be shown to reflect the dispersal of books from a single private library. British book imports grew steadily, more than tripling from 1828 to 1868, made up almost entirely of imports from foreign countries as opposed to foreign foreign British possessions. Book exports grew even more quickly, multiplying by nearly 15 times over the same period. But in contrast, they are nearly equally divided between exports to British colonies and possessions and exports to foreign countries. In America, there was similar growth. Between 1828 and 1868, exports grew by a factor of seven and a half, imports by a factor of nine. The growth seems especially marked around mid-century, though low figures in 1838 no doubt reflect the curtailed economic activity caused by the severe financial panic of the late 1830s. Now, let me warn you, I've omitted from these figures re-exports and indirect trade. Re-exports are books imported into Britain or the United States for immediate re-export to foreign countries. They're not particularly relevant, but they do serve to remind us just how much Britain and the United States dominated Atlantic shipping during the 19th century. In 1868, Britain re-exported 133 hundredweights to Turkey, 103 to South America, 73 to the United States. Uh, indirect trade, uh, or figures for indirect trade account for the books, these same books in a different way, recording the in origin of the book, books, for example, books from the Netherlands arriving in the United States via English ports. These figures show, for example, that in 1868, the United States imported only $2,040 worth of books directly from Italy, but another $16,000 of Italian books indirectly through foreign ports, i.e. non-Italian ports. Well, the remaining graphs break down British and American imports and exports in three years, 1828, 1848, and 1868, for a selection of countries or regions. Again, I must caution you to take care to notice that the scale changes from graph to graph and confess also that I've taken a few liberties in grouping together countries in regions that were undergoing political change. In looking at British imports, which is on the left of each graph, we see that France predominates as the source of imported books in 1828, but in later years, other foreign countries become relatively more important. British exports, which are on the right of each graph, are fairly evenly spread in 1828, but in later years, we see the importance of the export of books to the United States and especially by 1868 to Australia. It's also apparent, perhaps not surprisingly, that the United States was the predominant market for British books in foreign countries, that is, non-British possessions. This is also reflected uh, in American import figures represented in the graphs at the bottom of each page. Germany and France were significant though much less important sources for books imported into the United States. American exports went to Britain, Canada, 
and a variety of South American countries. And interestingly, and I think probably these are missionary works, to China. Before leaving these statistics, let me just add that they allow us to mark another trend of the 19th century book trade, a change in the value of books. In 1828, the average value of a hundred weight of British books exported to foreign countries was 23.3 pounds, to British possessions 25.8 pounds. By 1868, these had fallen to 12.7 and 9.8, respectively. Now, these figures are incomplete and a bit difficult to interpret, but I've no doubt that that reduction in value of approximately one-half uh, is the result of the introduction of new materials and technologies to book production during the Industrial Revolution. One of the appeals of looking at the international trade in books is the availability of just these long series of statistics which allow an extended overview of the book trade. I wish that we had similar records for the internal trade in books for these years so that we could reach some conclusion about the relative importance of each uh, domestic trade and export trade to the book trade as a whole, but we do not. And I think that it is relevant to point to the reason that one set of statistics exists and the, others, the other does not. The customs statistics are a direct result of governmental regulation of international trade, a form of control that we tend to feel is inappropriate when implied to the domestic trade in books. We tend to call it censorship or something like that. The British government did, however, exercise some control over the internal trade of book through its so-called taxes on knowledge and the record of government receipts from the duty on paper, which was not repealed until 1861, is another good source of useful statistics for, the British, for British book production in the first half of the 19th century. During this period, the British and American governments regulated the country's foreign trade in books in two ways, through tariffs and through copyright. In theory, these two were independent of each other, though, as we shall see, they occasionally became entangled. Tariffs were a duty on books as merchandise, a tax that produced revenue or protected the domestic trade. Copyright established ownership in the texts contained within the books and thus determined which books could be legally imported or exported. Let me attempt to give a brief and admittedly simplified overview of tariffs and international copyright as these affected the foreign trade in books during the 19th century. Tariffs are relatively straightforward. At mid-century, for example, the British government charged a duty on imported books at a basic rate of five guineas per hundredweight. This rate was reduced in half, that is two and a half guineas per hundredweight, for books printed in living foreign languages or printed in English in a British colony or possession. The rate was further reduced to one guinea per hundredweight for all books printed prior to 1801. Now, these figures suggest that the chief goal of the duty was to protect and encourage the domestic book trade for the basic rate of five guineas would have added more than a third to the cost of imported books whose average value in 1858 was roughly 14 pounds.
per hundredweight. The total revenue produced from 1841 to 1850 from this duty was just over 87,000 pounds. In comparison, the internal tax on paper paid in a single year, 1850, was 853,000 pounds, almost 10 times as great as the import duty for an entire decade. In the United States, tariffs were a major source of governmental income during the 19th century and always a bit more complicated. Between 1824 and 1846, duty on imported books was charged according to a schedule that depended upon the language in which the book was printed. In 1842, for example, the duty on bound books printed in English was set at 30 cents a pound. On bound books in foreign languages, except Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, at five cents a volume. On Latin and Greek books, at 15 cents a pound, and on Hebrew books, at 10 cents per pound. Get that? Unbound volumes were charged at a reduced rate. It was also established that any book that had been published abroad for more than one year and not yet republished in the United States, or that had been published abroad more than five years before importation was only charged one-half the duties, and books printed more than 40 years before the importation were charged at five cents a volume. Well, fortunately, this schedule didn't last. In 1846, that Walker tariff set the duty on books at a simpler flat rate of 10% ad valorem, but 20% on books in course of printing and republication in the United States. This ad valorem rate was lowered in 1857 to 8 and 15% respectively, but then in 1861 with the Civil War, it was raised again to 15% in 1864 again to 25%. So you add on a quarter of the cost to each book imported. Uh, copyright. The history of British regulation of international copyright during the 19th century is a bit complex, though we're fortunate to have a clear account of it by Simon Noel Smith in his law lectures. But before attempting a brief summary, I would only point to the useful distinction first made, I believe, by Graham Pollard between de jure and de facto copyright, between copyright as established by law and copyright as practiced by publishers and booksellers. It's tempting to suppose that once one has mastered the legal complexities of copyright, that understanding will follow. But this is rarely the case. For example, it is widely known that American publishers during the 19th century were under no legal obligation to recognize copyright in any text written by a foreign author. But most scholars fail to recognize that the economic realities of publishing at the time fostered the establishment in the United States of a set of conventions known as trade courtesy that established a publisher's right to a text a kind of de facto copyright. The British Copyright Amendment Act of 1842 remained the legal basis for the regulation of copyright until 1911, and it was the first to contain provisions to deal with international copyright. It provided that no one in British dominions could import a foreign edition of any work leg legally copyrighted in Great Britain and that no one in British dominions could print a copyright work 
without the proprietor's consent. It further authorized the seizure and destruction of all books imported or printed in violation of the act. This act particularly affected the colonies, especially Canada, because the colonies were thereby forbidden to reprint or import from neighboring foreign countries, especially the United States, cheaper editions of works that were copyrighted in Great Britain. This clearly protected the London book trade, which tended to favor expensive editions. But in 1847, the Foreign Reprints Act empowered the Crown to suspend the 1842 Act in order to allow the colonies to import foreign reprints, but it did require that a duty on such imports be taken for the benefit of the copyright holder, the British copyright holder. Well, in 1878, a royal commission discovered that this concession had had no practical effect. No duty had been collected. No British copyright holder had been paid. And in the meanwhile, London publishers had compromised and begun the practice of preparing cheaper so-called colonial editions, which made the matter moot. Well, the rights of British copyright holders were satisfactorily served by this act as far as publication in Britain and its colonies went, but the act made no provision for protecting the rights of foreign authors in Britain, nor for protecting the rights of British authors abroad. In general, until the House of Lords ruled otherwise in 1854, case law provided that the work of a foreign author was copyrighted in Britain only if it was first published there and if the author was resident in Britain at the time of publication. After 1854, foreign works were generally not granted copyright within Britain, while throughout the period, the rights of British authors in their works were usually not protected abroad. Now, all of this was altered by an International Copyright Act of 1844. This statute empowered the crown to enter into agreements with foreign states for the exchange of copyright privileges. The first such treaty came about two years later in 1846. It was done, made with Prussia and other members of the Prussian Zollverein. By this agreement, each government granted the same protection to another subjects as to its own citizens, but a work had to be registered in each country in order to receive copyright protection. The law also set substantially lower duties on books imported into Britain from Prussia, two and a half pounds per hundredweight if the work had been originally published in Britain, 15 shillings if it had not. A second copyright treaty was followed in 1852 with France. This also extended reciprocal copyright protection, but fortunately had no effect on import duties. It also addressed the questions of translation, stipulating that the copyright proprietor must state his intent to reserve the right of translation on the title page of a work. And I'm sure you've all seen that, all rights of translation reserved. This agreement was typical of a series of later treaties. Britain signed one with Belgium in 1855, with Spain in 1857, with Sardinia in 1861. Thus, matters stood until 1886 when Britain joined the Berne Convention. This agreement, which was adopted finally by 14 countries in Europe, that's most of Europe at the time, established a copyright union 
and provided that any work was to be protected throughout the Union if copyright had been properly secured in the proprietor's own country. However, the United States did not join the Berne Convention, and it was not until 1891 when the American Congress passed the Chase Act that it was possible for British or other foreign authors to establish copyright in their works in the United States. Many authors, both British and American, felt that this was unfair. British authors felt that they were being denied their due profits from sales of their works in the large American market. American authors felt that they were disadvantaged by having to compete in that same market with British works, which could be produced more cheaply since there was no royalty being paid on them. My understanding is that the real situation was a great deal more complicated. Many, many American works were pirated in England, while trade courtesy meant that many American publishers sent money across the Atlantic in hope of establishing their rights in British works. The 1891 Chase Act was not strictly reciprocal either, for it contained the infamous protectionist manufacturing clause, which required that a book be printed from type set in the United States to be eligible for copyright protection. Nevertheless, by the end of the century, Britain and the United States had successfully come to terms with many of the problems of international copyright, at least with primary trading partners, an accommodation that was one result of the increasing importance of foreign trade in books that showed up in the graphs. I'd now like to shift my perspective. Instead of looking at the Anglo-American trade in books at the macro level in terms of hundredweights and copyright agreements, I want to focus on a micro level and examine the trade with London of one firm, the Boston Publishers and Booksellers Tickner and Fields, at the middle of the century. First, let me briefly introduce Tickner and Fields. The firm was founded in 1832 when it took over the lease, retail stock, and goodwill of another Boston bookseller. Although retail bookselling remained an important activity of the firm for many years, it soon became an active publisher and by the 1850s had emerged as the preeminent literary publisher in the United States, especially of poetry. The firm's list included works by many of the most important New England literary figures. Bryant, Dana, Emerson, Hawthorne, Holmes, Longfellow, Lowell, Stowe, Thoreau, Whittier, as well as many Victorian writers, Robert Browning, De Quincey, Dickens, Kingsley, Mary Mitford, Reed, Scott, Tennyson, Thackeray. The firm's commitment to literary publishing has also been continued by successor firms, including its modern descendant, Houghton Mifflin Company. Tickner and Fields did not become literary publishers by chance, nor is it by chance that I'm able to use the firm for my case study. James T. Fields, one of the firm's proprietors, was himself an occasional poet and made a point of becoming a close friend of the firm's authors. Fields was very, very conscious of his role as a publisher in defining a version of our American literary culture and a version, I might say, that has proven to be amazingly resistant to change in literary taste and critical practice. And it is no surprise that the rich records of the activities of his firm, Tickner and Fields, survive today 
for scholars to use. Recently, they were presented by Houghton Mifflin Company to the Houghton Library at Harvard. In order for the firm to participate successfully in the international trade in books, it needed to be linked to three separate networks, networks that were designed for the transfer of information, of merchandise, and of credit. Although these three networks overlapped, each was in fact distinct. The information network enabled the partners of Tickner and Fields in Boston to learn what books were available in London. For this, they relied primarily on advertisements, notices and reviews in the periodicals, especially trade journals such as Samson Lowe's Publishers Circular, as well as publishers and booksellers' catalogs. These arrived regularly and quickly in Boston, where they were ex carefully examined. These public sources of information did not, however, fulfill all the firm's needs, for the conventions of trade courtesy required that the partners have early knowledge of the gossip of the London book trade, especially of planned London publications, so that it could be first to announce these in the United States. To this end, the partners made several trips to England to establish a personal acquaintance with pu London publishers. But most important of all, the firm paid an agent in London to keep them up to date with the latest news of new publications. A letter of April 7, 1856 to Nicholas Tribner, the London agent, indicates what was expected. The letter reads, thought we had explained to you when you were here about purchasing the class of books we want. We can't name author and title. New ones are springing up every day but you can tell a good book as well as we can. See the publishers of new books talked of, and they underlined, underscored, talked. Relatively stable. The packet lines, the Cunard line was the most famous, operated for most of the century, linking Liverpool to Boston and New York with regular twice a month service, first by sail, then by steam. These packet lines carried the mails which supported the information network, but also all but the very largest of the shipments of books that Tickner and Fields ordered from London. Uh, I should mention in passing that it must have been a great help to the firm that during most of the 1850s, the American consul in Liverpool was someone named Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was a close friend of each partner and one of their authors. The credit network allowed the firm to pay for its London purchases and involved the firm with large international bankers. Typically, the firm would purchase a bill of exchange with cash from the Boston bankers Brown Brothers. These bills were then sent to London where they were deposited with Baring Brothers who were bankers in London. Tickner and Fields then paid the London book trade for its purchases with notes, promissory notes, which they drew on Baring Brothers. Needless to say, the firm's London agent, Nicholas Tribner, was frequently called in to look over the accounts and settle the numerous problems, disagreements, disputes that arose from doing business at this distance. Barings, the London bankers, also had an agency in Liverpool, and that agency regularly arranged the delivery of the London orders to the packet lines that sailed from Liverpool. Well, having once established itself within these three networks, Tickner and Fields was in a position to import British books into America. 
as a supplement to their normal publishing and retail business. The firm regularly imported some works in bulk for wholesale distribution in the United States, but also imported small quantities of other London publications for retail sale. Books were not the only imports, however, for once the connections had been made, the firm began to import all sorts of other products, especially those related to the book trade. These included type, ink, paper, binding cloth, leather, stationery, and on occasion stereotype or electrotype casts of relief wood engravings that had been done by British artists. At one point, they even inquired if there were a promising young British engraver that they could import, lure to Boston and set up in business. But most important of all was the trade in texts, not books, but the texts they contained. As I have hinted, trade conventions allowed the firm to acquire the right, if not a legal copyright, at least a trade-sanctioned de facto right, to English publications. These conventions required that the firm be the first American firm to announce its intention to publish a work. But further, a claim in any work was considered to be stronger if the American firm had made some payment to the London publisher or author directly. British law required first publication in Britain, but American publishers usually tried for simultaneous or very nearly simultaneous publication in order to discourage competition. This frequently resulted in a payment to the British publisher or author for early sheets, proofs, or even a second copy of the manuscript set in advance from London. Thus, the trade in texts, as opposed to books, often called into service all three networks, information, merchandise, and credit. But to return to books, which books did Tickner and Fields import from England? The range was considerable. For wholesale distribution, the firm regularly imported British printed Bibles and Testaments, illustrated children's books called the Indestructibles. Curiously, I've only ever seen one of these. Books, excuse me, books printed on cloth. They were printed on cloth for children. From time to time, the firm acted as an American distributor for a British edition sent in sheets or in bindings, but usually with a special title page with the Tickner and Fields imprint. These included editions of the works of Mary Russell Mitford, Richard Hengist Horn, Maine Reed, Charles Dickens, and others. Another specialty was elegu elegantly il illustrated gift editions for the Christmas trade, including British editions of the firm's own authors, Longfellow, Holmes. Smaller quantities of British books and magazines were regularly received for retail sale at the firm's Old Corner bookstore. Finally, the firm sent special orders for single books to London for its retail customers, who included the authors the firm published, but also much of the intellectual elites of Boston and Cambridge. Let me try to illustrate this import trade by examining two separate transactions. The first involves the Tickner and involves Tickner and Fields as the American distributor of a new edition of the works of Charles Dickens, which was being issued serially by the London publisher Chapman and Hall toward the end of the 1850s. On March 9, 1858, the firm wrote to that publisher to inquire about the price that would be charged and also, how many must we take to have the American market, you agreeing not to send any others to the country? 
Well, terms were quickly agreed upon. June 15th, the first shipment left London. It contained 500 copies each, unbound in sheets, of Pickwick, Nickleby, and Chuzzlewit. Chapman and Hall charged two shillings a volume. The total shipment was valued at 300 pounds. The cost of packing cases, bills of lading, dock charges, entering, clearing, insurance, etc., was another 12 pounds, nine shillings, five pence. Though the firm did receive a drawback, a refund on the paper duty, of 20 pounds, 10 shillings, 10 pence. The total cost of the shipment thus came to slightly under 300 pounds, or as Tickner and Fields reckoned it, to $1,297.46, which they credited to Chapman, Hall, Chapman and Hall's account in September 1858. The cost came to 86 and a half cents a copy, plus another 30 cents for binding. The total cost per copy was $1.16.5, less than half the retail price which they charged $2.50. And because Tickner and Fields was the sole American distributor, the firm was able to further increase their profit on the work by refusing to grant liberal trade discounts. Instead, they would grant only 20% unless you ordered 25 copies, in which case a bookshop would get 25%. Normal trade discounts would have been 33 and a third and 40, perhaps. One particular feature of this transaction should be noted. It was a large shipment, and the first lot of books were shipped directly to Boston from London, not, as was normal, via the Liverpool packets. This caused immediate problems and delays. The firm listed these in a letter of November 30th. First lot shipped at London. We do not receive books for three months after shipment. Could not do anything with succeeding volumes till these received. Freight charges 12 pounds, nine shillings, five pence. Heavy, as we had to pay here, too. When the firm began to distribute the series at the end of October, a fourth volume, the old curiosity shop, was issued at the same time, although it had been issued in London several months after the initial three titles. A second transaction. On the 12th of March, 1858, Tickner and Fields received a shipment of books labeled Case Number 206 from the firm's London agents, Tribner and Company, via the Cunard steamship Niagara, just in from Liverpool. The contents were various. It contained small shipments of new books sent directly to Tickner and Fields from two London publishers, Richard Bentley and Henry Vaughan. These had been ordered on January 27th and February 9th, respectively. Imagine, Tickner and Fields could order books from a London publisher on the 9th of February, and they were in hand on the 12th of March. And they came to a total value of 14 pounds, 13 shillings. From Bentley, the firm received 11 copies of volume eight of a new edition of Horace Walpole. From Bone, they received a selection of titles, 66 volumes in all, from Bones Library Series. A third group of new books, uh, 11 different titles valued at four and a half pounds, had been gathered together from a variety of publishers by the London agent. These included three dozen copies of a book called Our Favorite Picture Book, presumably children's books, 
and several different recently published accounts of the siege at Lucknow. This is the middle of the mutiny. I, I guess it's not the mutiny anymore, the beginning of the uh, war for independence. The agents had also sent a collection of recent issues of magazines and newspapers, just over five pounds, which included eight copies of Dickens's Household Worlds, five copies each of Chambers Journal and the Illustrated News, and I think, interestingly, 12 copies of the most recent monthly part of Thackeray's The Virginians. In other words, somebody in Boston was subscribing to the parts of a serial novel as it came out in London. The shipment also contained special orders for individual patrons, 21 titles in all, just over seven pounds. These included medical books, sheet music, and back issues and bound volumes of magazines. Also included in this shipment were 14 parcels that had been dropped off with Trubner and company to be sent to Boston. This was a sort of special package express service that Tickner and Fields performed for its customers. And included with this shipment were parcels for Emerson, for Mrs. Eliza Fallon, uh, the widow of a Harvard professor, and for the uh, Congregationalist American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. The total value of books in this shipment was over 31 pounds, or about $150. The packing case cost another seven shillings. Freight was one and a half pounds, roughly, paid to Baring Brothers in Liverpool. Uh, there was also three shillings for postage, presumably for the order. The Tribner and Company charged a commission of seven and a half percent, but only on the books that it had gathered. That came to another one and a quarter pounds. But the agents also included in the shipment a report which kept Trickner and Fields up to date on book orders and also the latest news in the London trade. For example, in this report, the agent reports that the London publishers Kenton Company were not going to be able to supply copies of a portrait of Tennyson, which Tickner and Fields hoped they would be able to import to use as a frontispiece for the collected edition of that poet's works that they were uh, trying to put out because Kent and Company didn't have any copies in stock. Well, let me stop before we lose ourselves in the details of these transatlantic transactions. My point is simply to remind you how, and especially in what quantities, books pass across national borders. Particular arrangements, particular costs may vary from place to place, time to time, transaction to transaction. But this glimpse of the importing activities of Tickner and Fields indicates to me that by the mid-19th century, these networks required for the transatlantic trade were firmly in place. And I hope that I've also convinced you that it is necessary to keep this trade in mind as we read and study 19th century books and as we attempt to understand and analyze the culture and intellectual world that they represent. Earlier, I stated my belief that the history of the book has not yet emerged as an established and accepted international scholarly discipline, that its practitioners remain isolated and a bit fragmented. Well, I don't believe that the investigation of the international trade in books will change the situation, but I do think that it should remind us of the limitations of much current work, concentrating as it does on national histories of the book. I also hope that this talk serves to suggest the potential of the history of the book as a kind of study 
that will cut across national boundaries, traditional disciplinary divisions, and ideological and theoretical assumptions. In closing, let me attempt to explain why books are such interesting objects to me for study, what lies at the heart of our fascination with them. Books are special because they exist simultaneously as both physical and symbolic objects. What I'm suggesting is that the history of the book is really the historical study of human texts, symbolic constructions in material form, a study which investigates the textual creation, production, dissemination, and reception, and how all of these activities are influenced by human institutions, political, cultural, or economic. Our interest is not simply with the physical, with a particular arrangement of leather, paper, ink, molecules, atoms, nor with the symbolic, with a particular constructed meaning based on a verbal and visual sign system, but with both together. As historians of the book, we must guard against the disappearance of the physical book in our rush to explicate and interpret the text that the book presents and represents. But at the same time, we must remember that it is not the books themselves, but the use to which they have been put by human beings that is of interest. This work is of necessity historical, for the survival of a text is the necessary result of its having been recorded in physical form. And each book that survives immediately presents us with a multitude of questions about the past. Who made it? And how? For what audience was it intended? How marketed? Who has owned it? And how has it been used? Has it been read, consulted, annotated, treasured, displayed, neglected? And by what means has it survived? Which national borders did it cross? How did it arrive here in Charlottesville to pose these questions to us here today? Is that Jefferson back there smiling to himself? This seems to me to be the chief contribution of our new discipline, the history of the book. For it is the book, the focus of our attention, that has been passed down to us from the past and that serves as the primary and most commonly surviving evidence of past human activity. Our efforts are to study and understand the texts, literary or otherwise, that they embody in order to recover and appreciate the life and values that they record, that they represent. Thank you. Before proceeding, I'd like to make a brief parenthesis. In 1991, UCLA discovered that it had 132 copies of a 19th century book of poetry called Lucille. Lucille is a long story in verse. You may remember Mrs. Elizabeth Montague talking to Mrs. Thrale about Evelina, a novel that Mrs. Thrale was pushing, written by Fanny Burney, who was her protege. I do hope, though, said Mrs. Montague, in agreeing to read the book, that it is not in verse, 
I can read anything in prose, but I do dread a long story in verse. Lucille, which was written by Owen Meredith, the pseudonym of young, uh, the Honorable Mr. Later Lord Lytton, who went on to become Viceroy of India, if you please, in the 1880s. Lucille is a very long story in verse. It's nearly 6,000 lines, or say twice the length of King Lear. It is in Heroic Couplets, published in 1860. It was popular in England, but became madly popular in this country. What was noteworthy about the 132 volumes of Lucille that UCLA had was first their uh, greasy, quite literally, condition because of their improper storage over the years, and the fact that of the 132 copies, 126 represented different editions, so there were only six duplicates. We know this because UCLA, seeking a creative solution to a problem, presented the Book Arts Press with 132 copies of Lucille. <laughs> they arrived at Columbia and duly found their way to Charlottesville. I kid you not. Shortly after this happened, a bookseller called UCLA and said, we have just acquired a marvelous representative collection on the history of the book. It's all the same book. You'll never believe it. You'll never have heard of it. It's a novel by Owen Meredith called Lucille, and we have 102 editions that we'd like to sell you. UCLA said that they were not interested in buying these books, but they, know who, but they knew who would. <laughs> and I did. Of the 102 Lucilles from the Arundel Bookshop in Los Angeles, the seller, collected, by the way, by a man whose wife's name was Lucille, 92 were uh, unique copies to both collections. It only remained to look around us literally in this room to discover that the Book Arts Press quite innocently already owned 10 pre-1900 American editions of Lucille, none of which had really loomed very large in our consciousness. But once having got the idea, we began buying Lucille, so we now own 20 more, all of them unique. Meanwhile, we discovered that the curator of special collections at the University of Tulsa, Sid Hutner, has made it a life's work to collect pre-1900 American editions of Lucille. He has 98 Lucilles in his collection, of which practically all of them are, again, not only uh, not duplicated in his collection, but not duplicated in ours either. The result of this is that between Hutner's collection and the Book Arts Press collections, we know of, by actual examination and possession, 366 different pre-1901 American editions of Lucille, of which 302 are unique. This is a book that I have yet to discover anyone under the age of 70 ever to have heard of in this country, including 19th century specialists in English literature. Last week, Marianne Malkin, who was in residence, amused herself by unpacking the collection which arrived from Tulsa, where Sid Hutner has cataloged it for us, 
and it is directly behind me as I speak. It is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the world's principal collection of pre-1901 editions of Lucille, even without the Barrett collection, which in fact is quite formidable, though it cannot compete with us, in this subject. I thought, since you're all here, and since this unveils the collection to uh, a public previously innocent of the transports in store for it, uh, I thought you'd like to see this. Uh, they're in the open uh, cupboards just behind me. If you'd like to look at the books carefully, bearing in mind that some of them are still greasy, uh, please do that. They are, in fact, a perfectly marvelous representative uh, collection of the history of the book for its period, which is the second half of the 19th century. And it is, to me at least, a stunning suggestion as to the differences between our view of the 19th century and the 19th century's view of the 19th century. Marianne Malkin, who is 80, had heard about Lucille because although her generation did not read it, her parents' generation did. So it was a book that her generation, in a vague sort of way, knew in the way that our generation might know, for example, Forever Amber, sorry, my generation, might know Forever Amber, or uh, Anthony Adverse, long stories in prose, to be sure, but I think there are no parallels anymore as regards long stories in verse. Anyway, there they are. If you'll take a look at your pleasure, and then please come to the staff lounge on the first floor of Alderman Library, which you can do without getting wet, I think, for uh, a glass of wine or something cold and a uh, conversation with our speaker. Thank you for coming.